0: So we've been uh, looking at this book, The Song of Solomon, for the last, uh, this will be the fourth, fourth week. And um, we've more or less looked at all the chapters in the book. We skipped over Chapter 6 because of the time. But um, if you had the email, the mail out, or if you um, contact Mark, uh, you'd be able to get this, the manuscript of, of, a, of an, uh, a bonus talk, if you like, on Chapter 6. So all together are five talks. And if the sound doesn't work tonight, I suppose you can have the manuscript for tonight's talk as well. But let's hope it, it, uh, it, it, it kicks in all right. So we're looking at chapter 7 and 8. What is this thing called love? Uh, here are some uh, statements from uh, pre-bu- pre-bu- prepubescent children. I can't say that word. Here's Alan, age 10, on the secret of marriage. You've got to find someone who likes the same stuff as you. If you like sport, she should like it that you like sport and should keep the chips and dip coming. (laughs) Laurie, aged eight, when asked what her mum and dad had in common, thought for a while and then she said, uh, well, they both don't want any more kids. (laughs) Pam, aged seven, was asked, when is it okay to kiss someone? When they're rich, she said. Anita, aged nine, Is it better to be single or married? It's better for girls to be single, but not for boys. Boys need someone to clean up after them. And Ricky, age 10, was asked, how would you make a marriage work? He said, tell your wife she looks pretty, even if she looks like a truck. (laughs) So, uh, you know, out of the mouths of babes. (laughs) Um, It's all very amusing, but you're not likely to take advice from uh, about love and marriage from a bunch of prepubescent school kids, are you? So, where are you going to turn to? Uh, Who are you going to listen to? Oprah? Uh, Dr. Phil? Cosmopolitan magazine? What wisdom are you going to live by? See, Solomon is regarded as the uh, wisest man who ever lived. The wisdom of Solomon is, is legendary. There are three books in the Bible attributed to Solomon. Um, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Solomon. Uh, If the Bible was subject to censorship, then this book that we've been looking at, the Song of Solomon, would probably be rated M for mature audiences only. It contains adult themes, strong nudity, but no coarse language. It's a book about sex and marriage. And as we come to these final two chapters, chapters 7 and 8, I want you to see Uh, Three things tonight in these two chapters. A dance, a definition, and a drama. So first of all, the dance. Uh, The dance of love. Uh, The invitation to the dance is there in verse 13 of chapter 6. That's why we started at the the end of chapter 6. They're they're driving off, if you read the end of chapter 6, they're driving off into the sunset in the royal chariot, with Solomon and Shazad on the back windscreen. (laughs) And her friends shout after her, come back, come back, O Shulamite, come back, come back, that we may gaze on you. Come on, they're saying, give us a twirl. Let's get, let's, let's get a good look at you. They're inviting her to dance for them. And they have a particular dance in mind. It's called the, the dance of Mahanaim, or the dance of the two camps, of the two armies. If you can picture it, two armies in formation, battling it out, attacking and defending advancing and retreating it's that kind of a dance that's what this dance is like it's it's poetry in motion it's like watching whales playing rugby <laughs> that's what you've got here it's that sort of a dance and as she as she dances he's mesmerized you can you can watch the dance it's, it's on YouTube it's there in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 7 He describes her from the feet up, which is what you'd expect if she's dancing. How beautiful your sandaled feet, O prince's daughter. Now, when we open our Bibles, you know, we don't find a separation of body from soul. That's kind of neo-Platonism which got into the church. We don't find in our Bibles uh, uh, a separation of matter from spirit or... Godly purity from physical passion. There's no devaluing of the, of, of the human body. There's no dichotomy between spirituality and sexuality. The early church fathers and the old Puritans got it really wrong on this. Not on everything, by any means. But they were wrong about this. For example, one of my favorite uh, commentators is a guy called Matthew Henry. Everybody should have a copy of Matthew Henry's commentary. Uh, it's a Puritan classic. It's a devotional commentary. It's a great commentary on the whole Bible. Uh, please get hold of a copy if you can find it. It's, you often see them in second-hand bookshops. It's, it's really worth its weight in gold, and it's pretty heavy. But uh, this is what Matthew Henry says in his commentary about the Song of Solomon. He says, when we apply ourselves to the study of this book, we must not only with Moses and Joshua put off our shoes from off our feet because we're on holy ground, but he says we must forget that we have bodies. Strange thing to say. Forget that we have bodies. How can you possibly forget that you've got a body when you read verses like this? Your graceful legs are like jewels, the work of an artist's hand. Your navel is a rounded goblet that never lacks blended wine. Your waist is a mound of wheat encircled by lilies. Your breasts are like two fawns, like twin fawns of a gazelle. This is a poem that's celebrating the body, the human body. There are four long poetic pieces in this song that celebrate the human body, and this is one of them. And you see what he's doing here in these verses? He's praising her beauty. He's admiring her figure as she dances. Graceful legs, curved thighs, rounded navel, cuddly breasts, shapely waist. It's, it's a sheaf of wheat, by the way, in verse 2, not a mound of wheat or a sack of wheat. She's got an hourglass figure. And then he spoils it all, doesn't he? Look at verses 4 and 5. He says, you've got a nose like the Tower of Lebanon and a head like Mount Carmel. Sounds like Barbara Streisand, doesn't it? <laughs> But he's not talking so much about her looks or her facial features as he is about her bearing. She's dancing. She's moving. And and as she twists and turns, she's turning him on. How do I know that? Well, look at verses 6 to 9. How beautiful you are! How pleasing, my love, with your delights! Your stature is like that of the palm, and your breasts like clusters of fruit. I said, I will climb the palm tree. I will take hold of its fruit. May your breasts be like clusters of grapes on the vine, the fragrance of your breath like apples and your mouth like the best wine. He wants to climb the palm tree. And you don't need much of an imagination to understand what he's saying there. And that desire that he has is reciprocated in verses 9 to 13. When she replies to him, they want to make out, they want to make love. This is the most erotic part of the song. Uh, and all the imagery here is sexually charged in verse 13 they talk about mandrake mandrakes were thought were thought to be aphrodisiacs in that in those days Pharmacologically speaking mandrakes are not aphrodisiacs. They're more likely to send you to sleep than get you aroused, but this man is a poet not a not a pharmacist and uh, The only chemistry he's interested in is the sexual chemistry between these two And it's palpable isn't it It's palpable Look at verses 1 to 4 of chapter 8. Haven't you you seen something like that? Haven't you seen young lovers clinging to each other in the street, say at the bus stop, kissing each other? She wants to do that. That's what she says here. But you see, it was culturally, and it still is in many places today, it was culturally inappropriate for her to do that. Even in the Bedouin culture still today, the, the only way that a man could kiss a woman public in public was if he was her brother by the same mother and, and that was the culture in which this song was written uh, and so she says if only you were to be like a brother who was nursed at my mother's breast then if i found you outside i'd kiss you and no one would despise me his left arm is under my head his right arm embraces me and then she says again to her friends there in verse four daughters of jerusalem I charge you, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. That's the chorus line all the way through this song, isn't it? Be patient. Wait for the right time and the right person prayerfully. Wait. And when God brings you together in the covenant of marriage, go for it. There's a lovely story told about um, Louis Armstrong, the the, the famous uh, jazz musician. In, In 1949, Pope Pius XII Uh, Visited America and met Louis Armstrong Louis Armstrong would have been about 50 at the time I think And and the Pope asked him uh, do you and mrs. Armstrong have any children? No, holy father said Armstrong um, said Armstrong, but we're having a lot of fun trying. (laughs) I Don't think that was the, the answer that the Pope was looking for or was expecting But it's entirely appropriate isn't it and thoroughly biblical If, God has, if you're a married couple and God hasn't blessed you with children yet, or if God hasn't blessed you with children, you're nonetheless married. Sex is not just for the procreation of children. It is a good gift from God to be enjoyed within the covenant of marriage. It's good, clean fun. It was God's idea. And he's our creator. Let's move then from the dance of love to the definition of love. If you look at verses 5 to 7 of chapter 8, see, the world's got many definitions of love, some funny, some sad, some coy, some bizarre, some true, some silly, some sentimental. Love is a warm puppy, according to Charlie Brown. What on earth does that mean? Uh, Love means sharing the chores. Love is never having to say you're sorry, really. What is this thing called love? See, so far we've had a description of it, but now she's going to give us a definition of it. But first, the daughters of Jerusalem have to get out their digital cameras and capture the scene for us. Who is this coming up from the wilderness, leaning on her beloved? There they are. Uh, You can see them, can't you? Arm in arm, leaning on each other, the picture of love and happiness. So what is this thing called love? She's found love. And she's going to define it for us. And she says five things, all at the beginning with the letter P. Well, they are in my notes, because I like to, to do that sort of thing. <laughs> Love is painful. She, she, compares, she compares it to giving birth in verse 5, the second half of verse 5. This is stretching it a bit, I think. It's, it's almost impossible. It's almost impossible for us men to uh, appreciate just how painful that is. Uh, Bill Cosby tries to explain it like this. He says, take your lower lip and pull it over your head. <laughs> well, love is like that. It's painful. It's, it's like laboring to give birth. It's, it's hard work. You know, when, when I prepared, I've lo- t- taken loads of weddings over the years, and I use something called prepare enrich when I'm preparing couples for marriage. And uh, the, there's a questionnaire you fill in, and there are questions... And it's designed, the questionnaire is designed to pick up any kind of uh, unrealistic expectations that people have, Uh, and and, and, and it's it's a very helpful tool because, you know, people go into marriage and one of the questions is, do you think you'll ever have any problems in your marriage? And of course, no, a lot of people say, no, we don't have any problems in your marriage. Well, that's very unrealistic. Of course, you're going to have problems. We're human beings. We're fallen human beings. We're all sinners. And, and, and marriage is something, you don't just fall into it, you have to work at it. it. It's hard work. C.S. Lewis put it like this, he said, To love is to be vulnerable. There's pain in love. Love love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Not even a warm puppy. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it'll change. It'll not be broken. It'll become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. So that's the first thing. Love is painful. And then secondly, love is possessive. Look at verse 6. Place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm. For love is as strong as death. It's jealousy unyielding as the grave. There's some very powerful images here, aren't there? A seal is a proof of ownership. It says, this is mine. Real love is a jealous love. To be jealous of someone is a vice. It's destructive, and it will ruin your marriage. But to be jealous for someone is a virtue. Anything less than that is not love at all. True love is jealous. It is possessive. And that's the kind of love that God has for his people, as we saw when we did that series in the book of Hosea, didn't we? Our God is a consuming fire. He is a jealous God. Not jealous of his people, but jealous for his people. That's why he gives us such a hard time sometimes doesn't he because he wants the best for us so love is painful and its possessive and and then the third thing is this it's permanent look at verse six again love is as strong as death and as unyielding as the grave you see, like like death and the grave it never gives up those committed to it BB B. Warfield is one of the great uh, reformed theologians he was a professor of theology at Princeton University from uh, 1887 to 1921 and he's well-known for his many, many books, very, very helpful books. But what's not so well-known about B.B. Warfield is how he cared for his wife. At the age of 25, Warfield married Annie and they went off to Germany for their honeymoon, where Annie was struck by lightning and paralysed for life. Warfield spent almost 40 years caring for her never leaving her side for more than two hours at a time. He gave 40 years of his life to a woman who couldn't kiss him, couldn't make love to him, couldn't give him children. That's what it means to wear a wedding ring. That's what it means to keep your marriage vows. For better, for worse, in sickness and in health, till death do us part. See, that's a love that is stronger than death and as unyielding as the grave, isn't it? Love is painful, love is possessive, love is permanent, and love is persevering. Look at verse 7. Many waters cannot quench love. Rivers cannot sweep it away. And, and verse 6. It burns like blazing fire, like a mighty flame. This is the only place in the, in the Song of Solomon where, the, where the, the name of God is mentioned it burns like a blazing fire, like a mighty flame, literally the very flame of the Lord, of Yahweh. This is where God's mentioned, the flame of the Lord, and there it is, blazing away in the middle of the North Sea. Can you see that on that slide? That's the picture that comes to mind here, you see. It's like a a blowout in an oil field. Can you see it? tumultuous waves all around as far as the eye can see, and there's this gigantic flame blazing away, and nothing can put it out. You see, love is not f- infatuation. We say, don't we, oh, they're infatuated with one another. That's, that's his latest flame. <laughs> but it's soon extinguished, isn't it? It soon goes out. But nothing can extinguish God's love no amount of discouragement or disappointment or adversity. True love is painful, it is possessive, it is permanent, it is persevering, and it's priceless. If anyone were to give all the wealth, verse 7, if, if one were to give all the wealth of one's house for love, it would be utterly scorned. So the Beatles got it right, didn't they? Money can't buy me love. What if Solomon had tried to, to buy his way into the affections of this country girl? What if he turned up in a flashy car with a wallet full of credit cards and promised her a good time? Do you think she would have been impressed? No, she would have despised him, wouldn't she? So we've seen her dance and uh, we've heard her define for us what love is. Now for the final curtain call in this drama of love. And you notice how in uh, these closing verses, all the main characters, uh, you'll have to look at and read it again probably, but in these closing verses you'll see that all the main characters come back on stage to take their final bow. This is the finale, this is the climax climax of the book. And as as we come to the end of the song, I want to remind you again that um, this is wisdom literature, not just poetry. It's there to teach us how to live God's way in God's world. That's what wisdom literature, is designed to do, and it's surely very significant, isn't it, that this song ends with a a powerful exhortation to sexual purity, which is so urgently needed in our sex-crazed culture today, isn't it? See, sexual purity is a priority in the Bible for both men and women. In, in the Old Testament, for example, you'll find in, in Psalm 119 you'll find verses like this: "How can a young man?" Keep his way pure. That should be the concern of a godly young man, to keep his way pure. Think of Joseph, you know, being seduced by the boss's wife. How can I do this thing and sin against God? Or in the New Testament, in, in Paul's letter to Timothy, remember what he says? He says, this is his advice there to the church, treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity or in the NIV, NIV says, with absolute purity. that There's no double standard for men and women in Scripture. Uh, to, to use the imagery of these closing verses, everyone is to remain a wall until the door of marriage is open. Look at verses 6 to 9 of chapter 8. It's not absolutely clear who's speaking here. It could be her brothers, but it's... It it says in our our translation that it's the friends, and it probably is her friends. could be either. But listen to what they say. There, verses 8 to 9. We have a little sister, and her breasts are not yet grown. What shall we do for our sister on the day she's spoken for? That's the day of her marriage. How are we going to care and protect and look after this little sister of ours? If she's a wall, we will build towers of silver on her. If she's a door, we will enclose her with panels of cedar. So is she a wall or is she a door? See, being a wall means staying a virgin. To be a door means the opposite. To be a wall is not to let anyone through. To be a door means to let anyone through. And that's the generally accepted norm today, isn't it? Casual sex, have as many partners as you want before you settle down with someone. You've got to try before you buy. So be a door, not a wall. In fact, why not be a revolving door and have sex with as many partners as you want? That's what's expected nowadays, isn't it? That's the pressure that our kids are facing from their peers. How lucky is this girl with her peers? They want to protect her, don't they? They want to encourage her as she grows up through puberty to maturity. I think one of the, 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 the ugliest, saddest things in our culture today is the, is the way young kids are exploited, sexually exploited. By the media, by the, the advertising business. Even in the schools, by the state. And some of the, the programs that are run in the schools. They exhort her to keep herself pure, to save herself for marriage for the day that she's spoken for, verse 8. And then in verse 10, she speaks. Now, this is, this, is, this is her testimony now as a grown woman who's now married. She's kept herself for that day, and she says it was worth it. She says, I'm a wall, and my breasts are like towers. Thus I have become in his eyes like one bringing contentment. And the word there is shalom. It's the most beautiful word. It's the richest word in the Bible, it means completeness, it means wholeness, it means total well-being. In verse 12 she boasts, My vineyard is mine to give. See, it's, it's widely assumed nowadays, isn't it, that if you aren't sexually active you're somehow repressed and frustrated. If you haven't experimented sexually, if you're sexually innocent that you haven't really lived, what rubbish what absolute nonsense is that? Let me, clo- let me just finish with this story. Richard Bewes, who was uh, John Stott's successor in London at All Souls, <laughs> Langham Place, he was brought up on the mission field. He had, um, his parents were missionaries in Kenya. And he speaks in one of his books. He speaks about a lady called Lorna Bow- Bowden, Auntie Lorna. Auntie Lorna, he says, was a single lady of uncertain age. Whether she'd ever had a boyfriend simply wasn't the kind of question you would dare to ask her. (laughs) We knew her as a woman of modesty and of apparent um, innocence in matters of this kind. And she certainly wasn't the poorer for it. She was a complete person. Certainly she was modest. She was the only missionary for many miles around who had ever given injections. When uh, she was asked by a large male missionary by the name of Harry Cantrell to administer an injection in his backside, Auntie Lorna went pink. Oh, Harvey," she said. "That's rather difficult, isn't it? Oh dear, I feel a bit... Harvey, what are we going to do? Don't worry, a, don't worry a bit, Lorna," came the reply. "You stand one side of the door; I'll stand the other side, and you can do it through the keyhole." <laughs> <laughs> History doesn't relate what happened. Yes," says uh, Richard Buse. "Yes, she was modest and innocent, and interesting." She could make a flourless, sugarless, butterless, eggless cake entirely out of bananas. She was creative and alive, and infinitely more, listen to this, infinitely more interesting to us children than the boring, boozy, white mischief type of Kenyan colonial settlers of that time. To us, they were the ignorant ones. Isn't that right? Isn't Isn't this book a corrective to our culture?